sermon on this series called The Reason for Everything. The Reason for Everything. And if you've joined us for the first time today, it's a different series to what we normally do. What we normally do is read the Bible, try and understand it, try and apply it. But this series, we've tried to show how the Christian worldview explains everything, which sounds really arrogant. Um, but we really do believe that if it is true, then we should be able to uh, come to it and we should be able to test it and weigh it and it's going to come out. We don't need to uh, do anything or do any fancy footwork here. It is going to come out true. Uh, So we've been looking at the evidence that points towards the truth of the claims that we have made about the Christian faith. Uh, But today, even though it's still part of the series, we are going to let the Bible speak because we're asking the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, if you are a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, I'm sure that you know that the gospel is kind of like a Christianized word. You hear the word gospel, and uh, immediately you think of Christians. But if I had to ask you, well, what is the gospel? Explain to me what is the gospel. Uh, I'm sure very few people will be able to articulate it clearly. You might know it's got something to do with Jesus, maybe something to do with the cross. And, um, but today we're going to deep dive the gospel. And we're going to let the scriptures speak, answering this question, what is the gospel? Last week, we spoke about the fact that the gospel is at the center of our faith. It is a primary issue. Uh, We make a mistake when we take secondary issues or tertiary issues or completely unimportant issues, and we try and make them primary issues. But for us, the bullseye of our faith is the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, just to start explaining what it is, uh, during the time of the Greeks and the Romans, the Roman Empire, whenever an emperor was born or an emperor-to-be was born, or if an emperor had a birthday, or if an emperor acceded to the throne, or if there's a military victory, what would happen is these heralds would get sent out into the empire to proclaim the, the Greek word, the evangelion, which we've translated as the gospel. In other words, this is the good news about the king. This is the good news. We're proclaiming the good news about the king's birth, the king's victory, the king coming to throne. And the Christians have kind of adopted this term and and grown this term to mean that the evangelion or the gospel is the good news. We become proclaimers. The good news of the king. The good news of what the king has done. The good news that the king has won. The good news about the victory of the king. What he has done and how he has done it. So if you want to know just uh, what is it. Can we put it succinctly so we can wrap our minds around it and then we will deep dive. Uh, We read a verse last week which is probably one of the earliest things written down in our our Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read just verse 3 and 4 this week. We looked at a few more verses last week. Um, So guys, if you have your own Bibles, uh, be it Bibles like this or your digital versions, this is the kind of verse that you want to bold, highlight, underline. Because this is the gospel. You see how Paul starts off when he says here, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. As of first importance. Some of us get so passionate about things that are of secondary or tertiary importance. And Paul says, no, no, no. This is of first importance. And he explains what it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures. 
this is a description of what the gospel is. But what we're going to be doing today is also asking, but what does the gospel mean? This is what happened. This is what the king has done. But how is it good news? What are we to proclaim and how does it change our lives? Now, uh, many people here this morning may have a, a bit of a charm bracelet with a bit of a cross on it, or maybe you've got a t-shirt with a cross on it, or a necklace. Some of you may even have a cross tattooed on you somewhere, or a collection. I know a number of people, us included, have a wall with a number of different beautiful looking crosses on it. Uh, maybe you've seen those memes, or even the backgrounds of some of the songs that we sing. It's kind of like a beautiful sunset, or suns coming through the clouds with some crosses in the foreground or the background. And those images are meant to evoke sort of religious feelings of, oh, how beautiful. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But the point is, that could, be, that could not be further from the truth of what the cross was. The cross disgusted people. It was a place for criminals. It was a place of blood and guts and gore and death. In the case of Jesus and so many other criminals, they were scourged first. 39 lashes to the back by a, a, an executioner who used to just drive stone and, and bone into the backs of these criminals, ripping it out, exposing bone and organs. The Bible actually says that Jesus would have been so disfigured by the time of his crucifixion, we would have not recognized him. In fact, we would have turned our faces away from him. We've got our beautiful little crosses, but the cross was meant to evoke such disgust. Imagine kind of getting a t-shirt or putting a bumper sticker of an of electric chair in the back of your car. Or a, a noose kind of hanging above your kids, you know, it's kind of insane. No. You know, it's just, just the way we think about nooses and electric chairs is how the first century felt about crosses. Which has caused a number of people to ask questions, both Christians and non-Christians. Why a cross? I don't know if you've asked this question of yourself, but why did Jesus have to die? Okay, God loves us. All right, he wants to forgive us. But why on earth die? Why go to such a gruesome death? Couldn't he have just loved us? Can't we just say, and I've literally had people in the church ask me, can't we just say God is love, the end? Why do we have to get into sin and cross and blood and guts and death? Some liberal theologians have even called the cross cosmic child abuse. See, every single day, thousands of people die. In the time of the Romans, thousands of people were crucified. So what makes this death different? Why are we claiming that this one man's death changed eternity? And as we answer that question, we're going to be talking towards the gospel. Now, a few weeks ago, if you were here for the series, you might remember a question we asked, and we spent the whole time talking about this question. Why is the world so messed up? A big problem that we have as believers and as people who don't follow Christ is really how we engage with evil and death and suffering. And there's a kind of an intellectual component to this. But there's also what is probably more difficult for us is the emotive side to it. How could God allow all these difficult things to happen? And you may remember in a brief summary, if you weren't here, uh, we did a bit of a mental exercise and we said, listen, just imagine going to your neighbors or, or Sanson City or Mall of the South or you know, your colleagues or people studying with you and kind of interview survey style, just ask them this question. Well, why do you think the world is so messed up? 
I don't know if you remember, we spoke about we'd kind of get, if we got everyone's answers, we get two big categories of answer. Category one, which could be described like this. There is something wrong with the world. So some people would say, well, what's wrong with the world? Why is the world so messed up? Oh, no, it's cancer. It's disease. It's, it's, uh, it's tsunamis. It's hurricanes. And I don't know if you remember, but we kind of identified, well, we actually don't have a problem with diseases per se unless they affect people. So there's some deadly virus floating around Antarctica. No one cares until it kills someone. Or we don't have a problem with natural evil like an earthquake unless it kills someone. So when we say there's something wrong with the world, this has nothing to do with the fact that I was naughty yesterday and now I'm being punished or something like that. No, no, this is natural evil. Our real problem with natural evil is death. So that's the one set of answers. The other set of answers, if you say, well, what do you think is really wrong with the world? It's going to have to do with people. The problem's with us. There's something wrong with us. So people may not say it like that, but they're, what's, what's wrong with, what do you think is wrong with the world? Ah, oh, corrupt government officials. Or, you know, adulterers or uh, uh, sex traffickers. That's what's wrong with the world. Violent criminals. That's what's wrong with the world. There's something wrong with us. And you know what? On both accounts, the Bible would agree with you and say, yes. That is what's wrong with the world. Death is what's wrong with the world. And uh, people, especially non-religious people, might not use this word, but the Bible would agree that there is something wrong with us. We just call that word sin. So boiled right down. Again, might use different terminology or language. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with us. What's really wrong with the world? Death and sin. Death and sin. So where we never quite got to in that talk is, uh, so what are we going to do about it? Can we do anything to escape death and sin? Both of these are inevitable. Now, uh, when we start talking about a solution, we've really only got two options. We either look to, if you believe in a God, we're going to look to God, or we're going to have to look at fallen humanity for a solution. All right? Now, um, people have tried to talk about a solution without God. Um, John Lennon famously did it. Uh, There's many polls that kind of talk about the number one song ever. Usually at the top of that list is Bohemian Rhapsody. But a close competitor for the number one song ever is a song imagined by John Lennon. And he said, well, imagine there was no heaven above us or hell below us. Or imagine there was no religion too. In other words, he believed that the solution to death and sin and all the pain that we experience in this world must be getting rid of God, getting rid of any ideas of eternal life. Now, we've tried that. Some people have institutionalized that. The Soviet Union institutionalized that. They said, we are going to actively get rid of religion and God. And between Stalin and Lenin, they killed tens of millions of their own countrymen in the name of getting rid of God. Now, not everyone who tries to look away from God for a solution is going to land up doing that. But I think we found in ourselves, well, no one yet has been able to defeat death, as far as I know. And no one yet has been able to deal with our human frailty, the things that cause us. Uh, Maybe not all of us are kind of genocidal maniacs, but, you know, who's let yourself down more than you? You have. You, You have caused pain to other people. You have, you know, we kind of say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, exactly, that's what I mean. And no one's been able to deal with that and make that right within ourselves. You see, if we do away with God, 
solution from God, we have to look to fallen people. And I don't think that we've quite got there yet. So it kind of makes logical sense to me if the biggest problems in this world are death and sin. That the solution is going to come from a being that's unaffected by death and sin. We call him God. He is an eternal being. He, it's not like he was created and one day he will die. He's an eternal being. He always was and always will be. And he is unaffected by sin. He is righteous and he, he is holy. And the gospel is a story of how this God, unaffected by death and sin, entered the world of death and sin in order to bring about a solution to the problem that you and I face, our mortality, death and sin. I mentioned earlier, we're not going to say what the gospel is, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to try and ask the question, well, what does it mean? And, and one of the best uh, pieces of scripture that describe what the gospel means is in Romans 5 verses 6 to 11. So turn with me there, Romans 5 verses 6 to 11. I know some of you ignore Romans. It's just kind of, you need a you know, four cups of coffee before you even get going. You need a nap afterwards. Um, so Romans can be tough, but uh, hopefully we're going to walk away understanding this passage a little bit more clearly. All right, for starting from verse 6, we're just going to walk our way through this passage. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, at first, again, if you're not, not a believer, that seems quite offensive. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, you, you're calling me powerless and ungodly? Well, well, yes. In fact, if we thought about it, I think we would agree with that statement. Again, up to this point in time, no one alive has been able to deal with the problem of death and the problem of evil within us. So at that end, yes, we are powerless. And what do you mean by ungodly? Well, it just simply means that we're not like God. Right? And even when you try to be like God, we are not like God. I think sometimes we think, and I think you know, both believers and unbelievers are guilty of this, that we somehow think God's sort of like us, just a little bit better. Kind of like us, but maybe it's slightly more intelligent, slightly wiser, you know, slightly more powerful. But you know, we can relate. And if we think like that, of course, well, if I try a little bit harder, I can maybe achieve righteousness or right standing. If I just try a little bit, then I can be a little bit more like God. And the Bible goes to great lengths to say, listen, if that's what you think, you haven't seen God clearly. Because God, one of the descriptions of God is that God is holy. And what that means is God is unlike anything or anyone else. There is nothing like God. I mean, think about it. He created everything. So therefore, we can't say about God, about anything in creation, well, God is like this thing. No, no, no. He, he's above it. He's beyond it. He's not like those things. He is so holy and so righteous that even when we try to be righteous, even when we bring our good deeds before God and hold them up to Him, the Bible says our best works are like filthy rags to God. Now, I think that verse is saying a number of things, and I think one of the things it's saying, it's not really saying that your good things are bad things, although sometimes we do our good things for wrong motives. But it's kind of like our righteousness looks so good to us. And if we had a vision of God's holiness and God's righteousness, kind of like lighting a match and saying, well, that's like the sun. 
When we actually know, listen, the sun is billions of times more powerful than the biggest fire man could ever make, let alone a match. Kind of like, um, have you ever seen those idols auditions? Where, I mean, people must be cruelly lied to by their parents and their friends. Yes, son, you can sing. And I don't know if their mom believed it, if they were lying, if this is a cruel joke, or if this is, you know, kind of, you know, we're in this new age where, you know, no one could do anything wrong. So, no, 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 you're great. And my friends, no, my friends also think I can sing well. And then they go onto national TV and suck. And the whole world can see this person who thinks they can sing. Compared to someone who can actually sing, man, that gap is huge, and yet they believe it. And somehow we believe that our righteousness is like almost like God's. And we don't fully understand how un-God-like, how ungodly we actually are and how far sin removes us from perfect holiness and righteousness. Think about it like this. Imagine a hot day. I mean, we're getting there in spring and summer, right? Hot day, you've been playing outside or playing some tennis or some sports and you're thirsty. So I bring to you a nice big cup of iced tea, lots of ice. And I say, yeah, this is going to quench your thirst. There's only one problem. I think I need to tell you, there's about one milliliter of urine in there. No, no, but the rest of it's proper iced tea. Oh, you would rightly, hopefully, reject the entire cup of iced tea. Or imagine you were in an accident and I came up to you and I said, listen, I've got a pint of perfect blood. I just, I just think I need to be honest with you and tell you there's, there's one single tiny little strand of HIV, but, but the rest of the blood is okay. Again, you would rightly reject that pint of blood. Why? Because you understand that that one little virus, or that one little drop of urine, I know it's gross, but I had to find a gross analogy Ruins the whole thing. So we don't like to think about that. So then we kind of talk about mistakes and indiscretions. We start to believe that there's something in me that must make me so attractive to God. And we don't understand how far God's holiness and righteousness is removed from us because of the presence of sin. So we are powerless and we are ungodly. And this is where God steps into the story. And this is where he says, listen, I'm going to do something about this. And this is where the cross comes in. So let's read from verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's apply some logic here. Where is their greater love? You know, I'm so awesome. God must love me. Then God loves me. Or actually, I'm like that HIV virus. <laughs> and yes, God has put his image in me and he's made some wonderful things about me, but that sin removes me so far from him. And yet he still loves me. Which love is greater? It's the latter. So again, people start asking, well, why a cross? Why did Jesus have to die if he loves us? Imagine the following scenario. You're walking past a river, you know, and there's some kind of tumultuous rapids going on and you look across and there's someone flailing around. But as you watch them flailing around, you realize, oh, listen, this person actually looks like they can actually swim. 
And for some reason, they're almost like pretending to drown. So you, you pull them aside. You say, well, what are you doing? You're pretending to drown. You could just get out of here. No, 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 I'm doing this for you. You'd be like, what? That's just weird. No, 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 I'm doing it because I love you. Right, that's even weirder. Right? I mean, you know, you know, run away as fast as you can. You see, that scenario only makes sense if you were the one drowning in the rapids and someone who was more powerful than you jumped in and risked their own life for your sake. While we were sinners, we were ungodly. We were powerless to do anything about sin and death. We were the ones drowning. We were the ones dying. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And therefore, God didn't just get up into a cross and die and be cruelly treated and say, look, I love you. That only makes sense when we realize that should be me. Now I understand what God has done for me. Again, maybe you're still asking, okay, Stephen, you know, I think I'm getting there, but I still, I'm not convinced. Why the cross? Why such cruelty? Couldn't God have just kind of waved his magic wand to get rid of our sin? And here's something, I don't know, um, from next week onwards, we're actually going to be talking about relationships and forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, so it's going to come up a lot from next week for the next four weeks. Uh, so be here for that, especially if you're in a tough relationship. But here's something that, that, that probably explains why sometimes we find it so hard to forgive. If we sit and think about it, we actually realize when I want to forgive someone, I come face to face with the idea that forgiveness costs me. Cost me to forgive. Imagine I lend you my iPhone and you go out and you use it and you come back to me and say, Stephen, I'm so sorry, I dropped your phone, it doesn't work anymore. I've got two options. My one option is to say, listen, you owe me now. You must pay for it or I can refuse to let you pay for anything. But what doesn't happen is the iPhone magically repairs itself. Even if I forgive you and say, listen, I'm not going to take a cent from you. Somebody, whether it's me or insurance, somebody still has to pay. So when somebody offends you, when somebody sins against you, I'm thinking of maybe the small things as well as the big things. If somebody steals from you and steals your joy and steals your time and, and robs you of, of some of the good things that that's, you've now missed out on in life. Someone hurts you physically, hurts you emotionally, rips your family apart. You've got the same two options. I'm going to make you pay or I'm going to forgive you. But what doesn't happen is that that, that misdeed that this person did doesn't magically disappear. The pain doesn't magically disappear when you do that. Somebody's still going to pay for that. And when you choose to forgive them, you're choosing to pay for their sin. And that hurts. I think you know that feeling. Man, if I'm going to forgive you, I actually hurt. Because not only do I experience the loss of the things that you've robbed me from and destroyed in my life, but now I'm going to experience this pain of forgiving you because I've got to bear that cost if I'm not going to count it against you. It doesn't just magically go away. Timothy Keller, again, just kind of like, a, almost like a modern C.S. Lewis, uh, he says it so wonderfully. He says, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So you can reach out in love and to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. 
everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. See, here's the beauty of forgiveness. If you choose to pay for it yourself, once that pain subsides and once that anger subsides, suddenly you're actually set free to reconcile. Suddenly you're set free for life and freedom and love instead of bitterness and cynicism. So does it surprise us that if God was going to forgive us, it wasn't just about magically waving a magic wand. Somebody had to pay for the sins of the world. And don't just think about the little naughty thing you did yesterday. Think about the most gruesome things. Well, don't think about it. Just be aware of the most gruesome things that humans have been capable of doing. And Jesus said, I'm going to forgive every human being. That means I've got to pay the cost. That means it's going to cost me. That means it's going to hurt me so that I don't hold it against them. So should we be surprised when Jesus climbs up onto a cross and there's nails and blood and death in order for Jesus to forgive us? But as he comes through the other side, a resurrected Jesus, never to die again. We are now in a position for us to experience reconciliation and love and life and freedom. You see, by God choosing to bear it himself, it's not like, you know, the Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. God did not make anybody else. He chose to have this inflicted upon himself instead of unto us. So let's just continue reading here, this last three verses, 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified, just you know, just identify that word. We're going to come and talk about it now. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Three times in this passage is a word I've already referred to this morning. That is the word reconciliation. We were estranged. We were removed. And now we are one. Now we are in intimate relationship with one another. Not because somehow... I was able to please God with my works, but because Jesus came and met me in my greatest points of need, death and sin, he came there. Now I'm reconciled to God. And something incredible happens, and this verse starts to unpack it. To illustrate, it's kind of like, you know, you writing a failing exam. And Jesus coming along and and writing a, a perfect exam and handing in your paper as his own and handing in his paper as if it were you. That's what he did for us. That's what God did to defeat sin and death. That's the good work of the king. Now, there's a word here I said you should just highlight. It's the word justified. It's kind of where the Christians hear the word, oh, I'm justified by faith. Everyone goes, amen. And everyone goes, do you know what that means? I have no idea. It's a courtroom word. I want you to imagine, again, here we are with all of our, you know, the HIV and this whole idea. We're standing before a perfect judge, infinitely perfect. 
And I, I'm guilty of sin and, 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 he, and he knows it and I know it. And man, what do good judges do? Good judges deal and punish with sin. Right? Good judges don't just say, oh, that's fine, you know, go for it. I kind of wish we had some more of that in our country. But anyway, um, good judges deal with sin. So there we are standing before the judge. And then the advocate steps in and says, listen, there's nothing you can do to this man. Well, why? Because I've paid for the consequences of his sin. This man needs to go free because of what I've paid. And the word justification comes from the time where the judge looks at us, looks at the advocates and what he's done on our behalf and says, Free, not guilty. Even though we are guilty, based on what the advocate has done on our behalf, paid for our debts in full, there's not a sin that can stick against us. So he declares us innocent, free. And that is what it means to be justified. The point here, if you kind of picture Jesus and, and the, the Father in this courtroom, it's not that the Father and the Son have different wills here or different goals. And that's kind of where this metaphor falls apart. But it's that no sin will stick because of what the advocate has done on our behalf. There's a story that I think I've shared with you guys in church before. It's not a true story, kind of like a made-up story. There was a king in a kingdom. Treasurer comes up to the king one day and says, listen, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I think someone's stealing money out of the treasury. The king says, okay, listen, just um, maybe just let the court officials and everybody know that there's going to be dire consequences for anybody caught stealing from the kingdom's treasury. Okay, so he goes out, tells everyone, listen, um, so after a month, uh, the treasurer comes back to the king and says, oh, listen, I, this last month, in fact, there's been more theft. And I, I don't know what to do. So the king says, well, let up the temperature here. Listen, guys, and, and maybe just don't go out and just tell the court officials, tell everybody. If anybody is caught stealing from the treasury, they're going to face incredible and cruel punishments. 39 lashes. Oh, okay. Well, everyone goes out and a month later, the treasurer comes back to the king and says, oh, I don't know what to say, but we're still in a bad situation here. We're still losing stuff. Well, just go remind everybody the consequences of being caught for this act. So a few weeks later, the treasurer comes to the king and says, listen, king. I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is we've caught the person stealing from us. The bad news is it's your mother. Some of you are hoping I'd say mother-in-law. No, I'm joking. We don't talk about that here, right? We... It's your mother. Now the king's got an option. Well, I, you know, I've declared this because I'm a just king that this crime is going to be punished. But then I've got a competing emotion going on here, and that is that I love my mother. How can I be both loving and just in this situation? So the king says, listen, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Pull my mother out into the center court. She's going to receive the 39 lashes. Oh, are you sure? This is my word. I'm a just king. This is what needs to happen. I mean, everyone's completely aghast when the king's mother gets dragged in front of everybody. And as the guy pulls back his muscular arm to put, drive these bones into, into the back of the king's mother, the king says, stop. And he unbuttons his own shirt. And he goes and puts his own body around that of his mother. And he says, now go. Oh, king, you know, this might kill you. I'm aware of that. 
Just do it. See, in that moment, the king is being just. He's upholding the law. And he is being loving by standing in the place of the one who should have received that wrath. And we struggle to reconcile this sometimes as Christians and most definitely sometimes people looking in at Christianity. How can a cross be loving? Well, God is being just. He's punishing sin. That which destroys us, he is punishing. But he's being loving by not counting against you and me, but wrapping himself around us and taking it upon himself. Perfect justice. Perfect love on a cross, the king, victory over death and sin. That is the gospel. So Stephen, how do I transition into that story? Because if I think about it, yes, I am my own worst enemy and there's stuff within me that I haven't been able to fix on my own. I am concerned about where this life ends. I'm concerned about where this sin might lead me, might lead my family. I am concerned about death. I am concerned about the hereafter. So how do I jump into the story of the king dying on my behalf? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because the Bible wants to answer you and I do too. So just one chapter back, Romans 4 verses 5. Romans 4 verses 5, this answers that question. To the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies, there's that word again, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Why does it say who does not work? See, real faith and real trust comes from the point where we do actually realize that it is true. There is nothing I can do about my sin. And there is nothing that I can do about my death. There's no point in trying, because trying will still get you nowhere. It is when we realize that the only one who's done any work to beat sin and death is God. Therefore, I'm going to trust Him. And guys, this is so counterintuitive. Because the world expects us to work. And the world crushes you when you fail. And it sounds so offensive when the Bible acknowledges that and says, listen, you're going to fail. So don't even try. But God, I'm offended. Hang on. So listen, I'm going to do the work on your behalf and give it to you for free. That's what we call grace. It's kind of like uh, and J.D. Greer, um, he says, it's kind of like waking up in an ambulance. When, when you kind of, you've been in this deathly motor accident and, and uh, you realize, well, someone's put you in the ambulance and someone's saving you and someone's getting you to the hospital. If you get well from that, you're not going to say, oh, look how well I did. No, you're going to say, well, you know, those ENT guys, they got me there. And those doctors, well, they saved my life. The only thing you had to do was just, you had no option but to be there. As J.D. Greer says, you know, you did all the sinning and Jesus did all the saving. So we do not work, but we trust God. Just like the the person in, in the accident, they trust the doctors. They trust the hospital staff. So we need to trust God. I know that this series has been an intellectual series. I know that our minds, and in many ways, our hearts have been challenged through this series. But at some point, we need to go from an intellectual exercise to trusting the person of Jesus. 
See, we can debate these things. We can debate Christian philosophy. We can debate worldviews. But at some point, you're gonna move from debating it to trusting a person with sin and death and life. Again, we can debate aerodynamics. But at some point, you're gonna decide, are you gonna get on the plane and trust that the plane's gonna keep you up as the pilot does his job or not? You maybe decide, well, I'm not convinced intellectually, so I'm not gonna get on the plane. That's okay. But at some point, you're gonna shift from, I do trust the, the physics and I do trust the pilot, so I am gonna demonstrate this by getting on the plane. So I wanna ask you the question, have you, not as your kid, husband or wife, have you gotten to the point where you trust and embrace the gospel. I'm not asking, have you been to church before? I'm not asking, did something happen to you as a baby and that kind of ticked a box in your mind. I'm asking, do you trust Jesus? Now, maybe for some of you saying, listen, I do trust Jesus. I just don't know when it happened and that's okay. It's kind of like, I don't know when I got on the plane, but I'm on the plane. That's cool. But again, I want to ask you, have you trusted Jesus? Have you come to the point where you realize you are ungodly? You are powerless against sin and death. And that Jesus was the one who stepped into your powerless situation and did it all and gives it to you. And as much as that gives us something to think about, have you got on the plane? We're going to play a video of a song and, and, and the song, man, it's a response. It's not an intellectual response, it's a heart response. And for every single one of us in this room, I'm going to ask that we use the words of the song as our own, as a prayer. Let the words echo what is stirring within you. But for some of you, I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to say, listen, maybe today is the day where you actually decide, I'm either going to trust Jesus today or I'm not. Can't be halfway on an airplane. You die when you're halfway on an airplane. Maybe today is a day, and maybe you've been in church for your whole life, but you've never trusted Jesus. Maybe this is your first time in church, and today is the day you choose to trust what the King has done for you. So let's watch this song, and uh, we'll pray together after that.